Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. We're into the last few weeks of 2021. And what a year it's been, to be fair. I'm sure there's never a year that you can't say that. But due to COVID, this year has generally been a historic year that will be looked back on in the years to come. Lockdowns, reopenings, vaccine rollouts, COVID variants, End of the year, so I thought it an appropriate time to get two of the senior members from the Wilson's Investment Strategy Group back onto the show to review the last 12 months from an investing point of view and also shift our focus to 2022 and see how the markets may behave in the year ahead. We're joined by former guests on the podcast show, David Cassidy and John Lockton. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Good to be back. Well, thanks for coming on and regular guests to the show will be familiar with you both. Uh, David, of course, being head of investment strategy group and John heading up our Aussie equities. So let's get into it. I might start off with you, David, as this is more of a macro question to start, which is your expertise. Let's go back 12 months and look at this time last year and where invest investor sentiment was at the time. What were markets pricing in at the close of 2020? Yeah, Ted, I think um, if we do go back 12 months, I think the expectation was that it'd be a reasonable year for stocks. And I think we've largely got that. So from that perspective, perhaps an unusual year that we sort of got what we were looking for. I think from a macro perspective, the, perhaps the big surprise has been inflation. I think there was an expectation that with all the stimulus in the system, we would see inflation at some point in this cycle. But I think the surprise is just how quickly it came through and how strongly. So for me, that's that's been the big surprise relative to expectations 12 months ago. On the topic of inflation, I feel like the year started off that inflation might be more transitory. And now it's possibly beyond that. What's your what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, Ted, I think the um, transitory structural debate started when we actually saw surprising inflation probably about six or seven months ago, around about April, May. We started to see some big numbers come out of the US and now we've come to the position where Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Chairman Powell, has actually officially retired the word transitory. I didn't know he could do that, but he's done that in his uh, (laughs) uh, little speech last week. Um, I I still think the debate's live. I, I guess what we're seeing at the moment is certainly inflation proving sticky. I still think it will dissipate as we move through 2022. Uh, I've been flagging the risk for a while now that inflations might get a little, uh, sorry, investors might get a little bit impatient with the stickiness of inflation. But I still think uh, as demand patterns normalise, and by that I mean as we transition away from excessive consumption of goods towards more 
a more normal pattern rebalancing towards services and also supply chains start to uh, readjust and uh, catch up with the um, high levels of demand. I think you will see uh, inflation come off the boil, but it might take a few more months. And, you know, there's always the risk that markets panic about inflation not coming off um, somewhere over the next few months. Now, John, as we look back at the year that's been, if there's been an a company or an, an area that you've seen most volatility or uncertainty over the stocks that you look at over the course of the year and, and possibly why this happened? Yeah, Ted, I think if we just pick on a single stock, I think this time last year, there was a degree of optimism around the company A2, which had been through a pretty tough time in 2020. It was kind of a, a COVID winner and then a COVID loser. And 12 months ago, the market was not sure which way for that business the, the 2021 would go. And what's what's occurred over the last 12 months for that stock is a further halving of the share price. So it's now down almost 75% from all-time highs, and it's taken best part of 18 months to do that. And it's a, it's a, it's a stock which has all the influences of the macro environment from, you know, being a COVID beneficiary in the first six months of this of this uh, pandemic to a COVID loser. And then on top of that, you had internal power struggles within the company. So if you had to pick on a single company in the, you know, kind of in the top 100, I'd suggest that that's probably the one which has had the most volatility, not only in share price, um, but also in uh, investors' um, expectations of, uh, of what the future lies ahead for, for, for that company. Oh, fascinating. And, and David, um, same question at you, but probably not so not so specific. Well, what's what's an area or an asset class that's really seen a lot of volatility and uncertainty over the year? Well, I think you'd have to point to the bond market and perhaps in the context of what we were talking about in terms of the big surprise on inflation over the last 12 months, perhaps it's actually the lack of volatility in, in, the, in the bond market, the fact that yields just don't really want to go up. And certainly if they go up, they don't want to stay up. I think that's been very interesting. We've still got either, if you measure it by certainly current inflation, which is very high, or even long-term inflation expectations, you've still got deeply negative real yields in uh, certainly everywhere, but the US in, in particular. Um, so I think it's interesting and perhaps perplexing that US 10 years are still, you know, let's call it only at 1.5% with a 6% headline inflation rate. Even if you look at the core measure, it's still above 4%. Um, I, I would have thought bonds would have pushed up um, more than they have. Um, the bears will say, well, they're giving you a message about growth. Um, but to me, it's still something of a, I guess, as um, a former Fed chairman labelled the bond market before, something of a conundrum as to where bond yields are versus where the inflation picture is. Even though I expect inflation to come down, I'm still surprised bond yields have been um, as capped as they have um, into the face of those big inflation prints and what's been you know, also very strong growth prints, uh, both in the US and globally. Well, later on in the episode, I might ask the question to you on where you think bond yields may go in 2022. But for now, um, let's, let's take the flip side of that coin and what's the area of the company that performed better than you expected this year. John, I might start off with you. What's something that got your attention over the course of the year? Macquarie Group is a company which I think has done, well, has done phenomenally well, large outperformance in the last 12 months versus the, versus the market. 
not really a surprise to us, but certainly a surprise to many investors in the market that this business um, could grow at scale and could grow as rapidly at scale as what it's proved to do in the last 12 months in, in an in a environment which is tricky to operate in for a global investment house. Um, and I think what we're starting to see in this business is that it's, you know, it's not just reliant on, you know, bond market or equity market volatility. It's not just reliant on, on ECM, but, you know, the, the, the structural pivot which Macquarie has made over the last few, we, few years, whether it's pushing into the, the clean and green energy space, whether it's technology, whether it's, you know, serious investment in asset management um, and also in traditional forms of energy, a lot of those areas are, you know, are being powered by structural growth drivers. And I think that's where the market continues to think this business is, is very much a market dependent, dependent on the, the M&A cycle, dependent on capital market cycle. Whereas I think this year we started to see the fruits of some of those investments pay off. So, you know, we weren't entirely surprised by, by that with Macquarie. We've been supporters of that business and of that view for a while, but I guess we started to see the fruits of that investment case um, in terms of a share price um, be delivered through the course of this year, Ted. Interesting. And John, I might just stay with you here because uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, that I'm not sure if this is a 2021 story or a 2022 story, but many tech stocks are, are taking a bit of a hit right now. And Kathy Wood's ARC fund uh, in recent times, yes, it's had phenomenal returns in, in past years, but that can't really be said for what's happened over the, over the last few months. I was just interested from your point of view, why we're seeing that play out. Yeah, we, it's a good it's a good question you asked, Ted, and it's still uncertain as to whether it's a twenty one story or a twenty two story. I think the the number one driver of what's been happening, not only in Kathy's fund but but also across Aussie tech in the last six weeks or so, has been the issue David's spoken about, which is just exactly how fast and at what time frame does the Fed start to. Um, you know, start to lift rates. They've already, you know, started to uh, pull back on on the QE and the, on the, you know, on the on the amount of liquidity which is being pumped into into the economy. And of course, that has that has a big issue for what I'd call long duration, more speculative, high growth areas of the market. Which you know, tech um, is overexposed to that. There's a lot of technology companies both here in the here in Australia and in the US, which um you know don't make profits today are expected to um and with the threat of higher interest rates and that's the important part it's just the threat of higher interest rates because as, as david said the bond market is still you know got one and a half percent long-term bond in the us it's it, that's hardly a big threat in itself so it's this perceived threat that the fed is going to have to ratchet up it's uh it's tightening policies much quicker and what the market's thinking, which has put a cat amongst the pigeons in terms of technology stocks. And, you know, a bunch of those stocks have fallen, you know, 30, 40 or more percent from all time highs. Um, in many cases, some of those stocks have given up all the bull market gains of the last two years. So, yeah, the jury out is still out, Ted. Is it a 21 story? Are we done and dusted on that now? Or, or is there still um, more in this story in 22? I suspect there's still more in there's still more to go in this because we still don't quite know just how um, just how strongly the Fed is going to act um, on rates as we go through uh, next year. Well, I might pull on that thread 
and start to shift our focus towards 2022. David, this question's for you. What's the market's view right now of how Omicron will play out over the next 12 months or so? So I think the market's still formulating its view there. I think um, as we sit here in the second week of December, uh, the market has probably shifted at the margin over the last few days towards the, I guess, the benign scenario for Omicron. I think it's still early days, but there's probably a degree of comfort that we still haven't seen any really bad news in terms of um, the health impacts of Omicron versus, say, Delta. So I think the market's got a little bit more comfortable, if that's the right word, uh, relative to perhaps a week ago when the market was quite nervous about the new variant and its ability to potentially evade vaccines and cause a lot of disruption. So I think the market is uh, taking the uh, glass half full interpretation at the moment. There is obviously a bull case that if Omicron does become the dominant global strain of COVID and it is relatively benign, that could actually be a very positive development uh, in terms of the pandemic to turn more of an endemic than a, a pandemic, as some people have put it. Now, I think it's probably still... A bit early to make that call, um, but that's sort of how the market seems to be moving in the last few days, but it's an evolving situation. And you've still obviously got a pretty nasty fourth wave of, of Delta playing out at the moment in Europe and increasingly in the US and other parts of the world, such as South Korea. So I don't think the pandemic's going quietly, but I think the market is you know, more relaxed than it was on the pandemic and Omicron in particular than it was a week ago. Um, but it's um, it's an evolving story, but that's the way I think the market's seen it this week anyway. Well, in your answer there, you put a timestamp at, at the time of recording. It is it is the 8th of December, and that's important because, as you suggested, it is a fluid situation with new information coming out every day, and um, that can certainly change the market's thoughts on likely events. Um, you also did speak about a bullish case. So, John, I'm interested in your point of view. What is a bullish case next year for the Australian equity market look like? Yeah, Ted, I think a bullish case for, for Aussie equities, the most important aspect there is that this uh, expectation of earnings growth from corporate Australia is, is, is delivered and, and more than just delivered, that the expectation or the, the, the forecast for the, for the following year, 2023, are, are improve as we go through the next 12 months. So I kind of want to be greedy here. You want to, you know, make sure we get those earnings numbers in 2022, but also have upgrades um, in our pocket um, for, for 2023. So that could occur with a couple of things going our way here in Australia. Um, that, that could occur with, you know, obviously the, the borders between all the states and ultimately international or, glo or you know, international borders opening. That would help on labour mobility. It would also help just generally with, with sentiment. Um, I think if we continue to see the relatively upbeat global growth, which David spoke to, that could certainly see our Aussie dollar rise, which is probably good for sentiment more so than anything else. would probably also lift our resource stocks. Um, and if we have a situation where the Fed and also our own central bank, the RBA, um, you know, is not really coming into action on, on the rate side of things, um, then we could get a setup where we see those uh, those corporate earnings accelerate um, as we go through 2022 and the expectations for 23 be upgraded. And that's certainly not out of the question 
um, that we see that occur here in Australia next year? Well, when I was putting these questions together, I didn't realise that a lot of these questions are of the uh, optimistic side. I'm going to you, John, and, and Dave, uh, I apologise. I'm giving you um, a lot of the, the bearish, pessimistic ones. So, uh, Dave, I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, from your point of view, what would a bearish case for next year look like? Okay, so I think well, outside of another bearish twist in the pandemic, which we've just discussed, I think we do have to go back to inflation. That does seem to be the scenario. If we do get persistently high inflation, if it doesn't prove to be transitory, that 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 is the big issue out there for markets, I think. So if we get to the second quarter and the expectation that inflation starts to come off the boil, if that doesn't happen, I think that's that's ultimately going to be a problem for or both risk assets and potentially for bonds. It's hard to know how bonds will react to that because they might just price in a very aggressive Fed uh, killing growth and might actually rally. But it's, it's certainly, I think, a problem for, for risk assets if we get persistently high inflation you know, through 22 or well into 22. Um, I think that's what could really upset the apple cart um, over, over the next 12 months. I find that the phrase high inflation can mean many things. So I was wondering if it's possible and if you could quantify what a healthy amount of inflation could look like. Okay, sure. Yeah, because um, it's a good question because economists and central bankers like to use multiple definitions of inflation. Um, so it is an interesting question about not just what the rate is, but which indicator you're looking at. So I think it's obviously the US sets the tone in terms of um, you know, risk appetite um, and, and the direction of most markets. So if we look at US inflation, it's running at the moment on a headline basis at about six and on a core basis. So taking out essentially uh, energy prices and, and food prices running at just over four. And it's that really that core inflation that central bankers tend to focus on. They, being economists, they tend to assume away um, some of the more volatile components of the headline and number. Uh, like energy prices. Uh, so if we're sort of running with just over 4% core inflation now, if it stays at that sort of level, or I would say even if it stays, let's say, clearly above three, if we're still there, let's call it six months from now, given that Fed's target is two, but I guess they've got some degree of comfort around that. But if it's clearly above three and indeed closer to four, six months from now, I'd say markets are going to conclude we've got a we've got a problem. That's to actually what sort of problem you've got. If it's you know accompanied by strong growth, you've probably got an overheating problem. If actually growth disappointing, where you've possibly got some sort of stagflation problem, albeit it's hard to see the US economy stagnating anytime soon, but it's possible it could disappoint. I think probably a, an overheating problem is a more likely risk case. Yeah, so, but I think something you know, well in excess of the target of two and probably their tolerance well in excess of sort of that 3% level, more staying up with the current sort of 4% pace. I, th I think that would unnerve the Fed and un un unnerve markets if we're still there in six months from now. Okay, and John, from your perspective, focusing in on Aussie equities, what would a bearish case look like for next year? If we exclude, I guess, global global shocks coming through, um, you know, a, a lack of this earnings growth for whatever reason domestically would be would be a challenge for, for our equity market. Um, in terms of events that we can see, we do have a federal election next year, and yeah, you know, I think the market is is really expecting that to be a bit of a 
you know, a non-event. But if that was a long, drawn-out federal campaign, perhaps with a change of government on, on, a, on a large policy pivot, um, which is not in the market's mindset at the moment, um, that, that could well be a handbrake for, for the equity market, particularly in the first half of next year. Okay, we've now covered kind of either end of the spectrum, and that's uh, what a bull and a bear case for next year could look like. David, as investing isn't an extreme kind of black or white situation like that, I'm, I'm interested in what your base case outlook for next year currently looks like. Yeah, Ted, well, I think the simple message is our base case is still relatively positive in terms of what we expect from both global shares and domestic shares in 2022. We think when you break things down, our central case is still an above trend year for economic growth and therefore earnings growth. Uh, we think that inflation may be stubborn near term, but should subside as the year progresses. And that will mean that the inflation environment will allow interest rates to stay pretty low. They might go up a little bit over the course of the next 12 months, but not enough to really short circuit the equity rally. So from that perspective, still overweight equities, underweight bonds, and still like alternative assets to provide a little bit of diversification around that base case view. And John, another another event is the uh, the reopening of international flights, which uh, uh, looks like it may, it may be playing out next year. And John, I was wondering if you could just speak to your recent piece on Qantas and what the reopening of international flights may do to Qantas's share price. Yeah, it's 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 going to be one of those key events, I guess, for for Qantas and other airline, other you know international carriers next year. Just at what at what scale and when does international travel, you know, start to resume? Um, I, I think Ted, the it's a common investor view that those international flights are important for Qantas's earnings. And we kind of did a piece last week in, um, in late, uh, late November where, where we kind of pulled that apart and, and made the point that it's actually not the international component of the airline, which is the key for profitability. Um, it, it's really the domestic side of things, which is critical for, for Qantas profitability. And you, you think about the three states on the East Coast, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, and the, the golden triangle in, in flying terms between the, the, the three capital cities there, that is a high margin, high profitability route. And, you know, that in early December is still not open. Uh, we're, we're optimistic and we saw some, some creep on the Queensland plans through the course of this week early December that uh, that we could see that up and running um, over the next two weeks. So the domestic side is critical for Qantas. Um, and I think it, it's two things which are needed there. It's one, the legitimate opening of borders, um, and that includes WA eventually. Um, but it's also from a customer perspective, the confidence to be able to fly even domestically and, you know, not have too much hassle with, you know, various forms of COVID testing and, and, and variable policy. So if you, if you were to have those two things happen next year, you know, we know there's plenty of pent-up demand. Um, we know consumers have the money to spend and the appetite to, to go on a, on a domestic holiday. Um, it's not out of the question that we could see the domestic business of Qantas return quite rapidly to a pre-COVID level, um, you know, towards the end of, end of next year and very early 2024. And 
that would effectively take your earnings back to you know 85 to 90 percent of where Qantas was pre-COVID. So international has a lot of media attention, a lot of a lot of focus. We all you know love an international holiday, but it's it's really the domestic side of Qantas which is most critical for for getting the share price up from where it is at the moment. Um, thanks for providing that, John. And if you're interested in John's research on that, a link to that will be available in the episode show notes. Gentlemen, thank you very much for the insight that you've just provided on on the year that's been and and what we may see play out in the in the year ahead. As always, I'd lo- I'd like to finish off the conversation with a with a slightly different question. Uh, in that, listeners uh, will likely have a lot of downtime off over the second half of December and and into January. And I'm interested in what has caught your eye. Do you have any recommendations for people reading, watching, listening um, over over the coming weeks? John, I might start off with you. Ted, I'm going to put forward a, a contrarian place to go on holiday. It's a place I've uh, I go on holiday often. Um, been there as a kid. You've you, you got to make headway down to Threadbow in the snowy mountains of uh, of New South Wales. Um, it's, uh, it's a bit strange middle of summer going to a ski resort, but, um, summer is their fastest growing category and it's just got widespread appeal for, you know, kids, families with young kids, um, you know, right through to, um, to, to retirees, golf, you know, walking across the high country and there's plenty of adventure sports down there as well. If you want a shot of adrenaline. So. You know, going to a ski resort at the height of an Australian summer may sound a bit bizarre to some, but um, highly recommended. And it's interesting that uh, last summer was the busiest summer on record for for uh, for Threadbow. So I suspect it will again be pretty popular destination over the uh, over the Christmas break. Ted, Dave, I'm interested in your thoughts. Any recommendations? Same as John, can be on whatever you'd like. Oh, nothing too surprising, I guess, from me, Ted. I don't tell my wife, but I'm planning on watching a fair bit of cricket with the Ashes <laughs> ramping up uh, over the next uh, few months. So I'll certainly be uh, taking in that to the extent um, I can get away with it. Um, also, I think there'll be a fair bit of backyard cricket at uh, my house over the over the summer. Um, Better a bowler, Dave? Um, I'm increasingly bowling off one leg now, so it's probably <laughs> more, more, of a, more of a batter. But uh, my son's 12 and a half, so um, I might not be the best cricketer in my family by the end of the summer. So I'm not sure if I'm going to retain the backyard ashes this year, but I'll, I'll let you know in late January how I went. But um, I think my my uh, crown is under threat, serious threat this summer, but we'll, we'll see how we go and see if I can retain it for another one more summer at least. Okay. My recommendation is for a TV show that I was actually, uh, to be fair, quite a bit late on. So some of you may have already heard or even even watched this show. It's, it's called... Um, it's called Succession and currently available on the Binge app. Thought that it might be of interest to this audience too, as I believe that it's loosely based on the uh, the Murdoch family. And on the show, we watch is there's this kind of aging family patriarch and a power struggle to see who's going to take over the the family business playing out while all these other different family disputes blow up. Okay, let's wrap it up there for this episode. We've covered so many different areas from global growth, inflation, and and what the year ahead may have for us in in store. And let's wrap it up there for this year too. We launched the Invest at Best podcast just three months ago, 
and it's been exciting to see how well received the show's been. If it's if you're new to the show, please check out the back catalogue if you'd like to listen to previous episodes. And we've got more great episodes planned for next year. So make sure you subscribe or follow um, to receive all new shows as they're released. David, John, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and looking forward to speaking again next year. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to the Invest at Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.